Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. Thank you so very much. You may be seated this morning. I hope you have your Bibles. Let me encourage you to find your place in Acts chapter number 7. Acts chapter number 7. We're going to begin where we left off in verse number 1. This is the longest sermon in the Bible. It's the longest one. And uh, it runs 53 verses. And uh, it is fascinating because what Stephen is doing here is giving a response to the accusations that was made against him. Uh, when you read this text and you see what Stephen is accused of, it's absolutely amazing what the Sanhedrin, what the council, what they're accusing him of doing. In fact, it, it covers four areas. Number one, the first one, they're accusing him of blaspheming God. That's first. The second one is they are accusing him not only of blaspheming God, but blaspheming Moses. Number three, the third one is they're accusing him of speaking against the law that God had give, given. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole law. Uh, book of Leviticus, Exodus. And then, then they are accusing him of speaking against the temple. Those are the four accusations that's been given to, to Stephen. And Stephen is standing, there's no reason to not doubt that he's not standing before Caiaphas, uh, the same one that Jesus stood before in regards to the Sanhedrin. This high priest is there. And in verse number 1 of chapter number 7, the high priest asked Stephen, he says, Are these things so? Is it true that you're blaspheming God? Is it true that you're blaspheming Moses? Is it true that you're speaking against the law? Is it true that you're speaking against the temple? Stephen takes the opportunity and begins to preach probably one of the most powerful messages you will read in Scripture. Stephen was an amazing man. He was a brilliant man. He was a spiritual man. Just remember, before we read this text, I want you to remember that the Bible says in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, he was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was also full of faith. The Bible says he's also full of grace... But he's also full of power. The Bible also tells us, and we learned last week, that those opponents, those accusers, could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And even in verse number 15, like we read last week, was that his face, after the accusation, was like the face of an angel. <laughs> and so they can't resist him. He looks like an angel. He stands up. And this is what he says, beginning in verse number 2. Read along with me as we read through the text today. I know it's lengthy, but it is worth it. Look at what the Scripture says. And he said, brethren and fathers. Now, I need to stop parenthetically and make sure that we're on the same page here. Because remember, when he's speaking to the Sanhedrin, he's not referring to them brothers and fathers like they're believers. That's not the brethren and fathers that we're seeing here. Now, you do see that when Paul's writing his epistles, he calls them brothers and sisters and brethren. He calls them all of these terms. But in this sense, what Stephen is saying is, I'm a Jew just like you. We are fellow Jews. Because remember, the accusation is that he's blaspheming God. He's saying, wait a minute. 
brothers, I'm a Jew just like you're a Jew. Not only that, we got my, fa- my fathers are in here. The fathers are here that have been passed down from generation to generation. He says this, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he went to Haran. And said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land which now, which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it. Not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Now the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over all of Egypt and all of his house. Now a famine and a great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out of it for his fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. And our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought from a sum of money from the son of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king who did not know Joseph, this man dwelt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now let me stop right there and say this parenthetically. He's referring back over to the covenant of circumcision found in verse number 8. He's saying, remember when they, would, when they came in and they would expose our babies to see whether or not they were circumcised or not, and they killed the boy babies. He says, remember that. He says, it was at that time, verse number 20, at this time Moses was born. And was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up in her as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. That is to go visit the Jews that were being oppressed. The children of Israel, verse 24. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed. And he struck down the Egyptians. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God, that God, uh, he would understand that God uh, would, would deliver them by his hand. 
but they did not understand. Boy, I would underline verse 25. It's so vitally important. Let me read it again. The devil wants to do his best for me to trip up here, but look at what he says. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day appeared two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me just like you killed the Egyptians yesterday? Or the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of a fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe it, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals because the place you were standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groanings and I've come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge is the one God sent to be the ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke at the Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, there's the Ten Commandments, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And their hearts were turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us a God to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. And it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Uh, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the stars of your God of Repan, images which you made to worship. And I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the, at the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed in instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it, also turned, and it brought, brought it with, with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked him to find a dwelling place for God, for Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. 
Which of the prophets did our fathers not persecute? They killed those who foretold of the just one, of whom now you have become the ones that are the betrayers and the murderers, who have received the law by the direction of the angels and have not kept it. And then the angel shone again. That is a powerful, powerful conclusion. Again, this is the longest sermon you'll ever find in the New Testament. It's a very fascinating sermon because it answers the accusation that was presented to Stephen. As a matter of fact, you can divide it up into three categories. The first category or sections you see in this text, in this sermon, is verses 2 through verse 16. In verses 2 through 16, you see Stephen dealing with Israel's patriotic period. And what he's doing is he's refuting the accusation that he was blaspheming God. He says, I wasn't blaspheming God. As a matter of fact, what he says is, you guys are blaspheming God by not listening to him. Number two, the second section you see is a major section. And this is found in verse 17, starting in verse 17. And it runs all the way through verse 43. And this deals with Moses and the law. Remember, the accusation is you blaspheme Moses and you're speaking against the law. No, in these verses, he says, no, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing at all. He says, you're speaking against Moses because Moses was pointing to Jesus the Messiah. And you're speaking against the law because the bottom line is God gave us the law knowing we couldn't keep it. And then the third section you see here in the text is found in verses 44 through 50. And this deals with the accusation of him speaking against the temple. And he just simply says and reminds them of this. He says, look, we may have had a temple in the wilderness, and we carried that temple everywhere. But remember, when Jesus died on the cross, that, that, uh, the temple veil was ripped, so giving us access into the Holy of Holies. And what he's saying here in the text as it was written is he's simply saying this. God doesn't dwell in the temple. God dwells everywhere. It's all his. He created it all, and the prophets even told you that. And then you see the conclusion found in verses 51, 52, and 53. This is where I want to focus the remainder of the sermon. There's absolutely no way I can go through all uh, 53 verses. So I want to focus on verses 51, 52, and 53 this morning. Stephen's conclusion. And I want us to see how the Bible outlines for you and I the basic characteristics of a lifeless nominal Christianity that refuses to surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what we see here. We see here in the text a formalism that is before God that is religious but is not righteous. These individuals that Stephen is speaking to are religious, but they're not righteous. And so I want you to notice with me this morning some key points that Stephen deals with. And I hope this sermon will help us in our surrender to God. The title of the message this morning is Stephen's Sermon and Our Surrender. The one thing Stephen wanted these individuals to do was to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But they refused to do so. The one thing that's going to change our country, the one thing that's going to change our nation, the one thing that's going to change our world is for us to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we're much like these religious leaders of this day. We're very religious, but we, the question has to come to our hearts, are we relational? Do we have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And in essence, this is exactly what Stephen's sermon is all about. 
He is wanting and challenging the religious people not just to go to church, but to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he points to their religion by pointing out four errors of their faith, their religion. Let me show them to you. Number one, the first one is their unwilling hearts. Their unwilling hearts. Did you see what he said in verse number 51? After he gave all of the defense that he needed to give concerning the accusations that was presented to him, he turns to them and he says, you stiff-necked people. I would underline that word stiff-necked because it's a fascinating Greek word. It's directly tied to the Old Testament. Many times, on several different occasions, God called the children of Israel stiff-necked. It was a farming term that was used of ox, the most common domesticated animal of the day. Everybody had to have an ox in order to plow their fields, in order to tend to their homes. An ox was led with a... With a uh, uh, lines that were connected to his nose to turn him left or right but he also had a goad and that goad would be placed on the on the uh, hip of that uh, uh, of that ox so that he'd get going and then he would put that goad and he would hit that goad on either side of the neck if he wouldn't turn the way he wanted it to go if that ox was stubborn they called him stiff necked it is a term that means stubborn it's a term that means will not be led. So when Stephen, on this particular day, points his finger there at these, into these religious leaders and calls them stiff-necked, he says, you're nothing but stubborn oxes. Stubborn. You're stubborn oxes. And we find that they couldn't say anything about that because if they were to take their Bibles, their copies of the Old Testament, and if they were to go back in the Old Testament, they would see that what Stephen is saying is exactly what God said about them. Let me show you what I mean. Take your Bibles and, and let's find Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter number 32. Look at this. This is uh, extremely uh, uh, interesting in regards to the fact that Stephen is speaking the Old Testament. Exodus chapter number 32. I want you to cast your eye at verse number 9. Exodus chapter 32, verse number 9. If you're there, say Amen. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. He agrees with Moses. He says, man, they ain't nothing but a bunch of stubborn folks. Uh, let me show you another one. Turn uh, to chapter 33. Just turn over a few pages to Exodus chapter number 33. Uh, look at verse number 3. Exodus chapter 33, verse number 3. Notice what the scripture says. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God said, I can't even walk with you, because if I walk with you, I will get so mad at you, I will consume you, because you're so stubborn. Isn't it amazing to it's amazing to me, but isn't it amazing that God, who's a God of love, mercy, a God that's long suffering, could have such a loving heart to us that He would not consume the children of Israel, and He knew that there was a time where He just needed to back off. I wonder how many times in my life I've been so stubborn. God said, "You know what? I'd love to walk with you, but if I walk with you, Shane, I'm gonna consume you. I'm gonna bring you home." 
That's what God said about the children of Israel. He said, I can't even walk with you. You're so stubborn, you won't listen to anything that I'm saying. And the question then begs, how were these children of Israel stiff-necked? How were they stubborn? How how were these uh, individuals, these religious leaders, how were they stubborn? In this fact, in the fact that they were unwilling to see how God provided for them in their history. They were unwilling to see it. Did you see what happened? Turn back to the text in Acts chapter 7. Did you notice where Stephen started? He started his sermon by saying, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. The very first accusation that was presented against him was that he had blasphemed God. And yet Stephen starts with God and says, the God of glory. He's the only God that I've ever worshipped. He is the one by which I was born. I was raised. I am looking and seeking the God of glory. I heard about him from our fathers. That is the father Abraham. He recognizes the fact that God started this whole thing. And then he just treks right down through history to say you were stiff-necked from the perspective that you didn't look at your history. You don't remember that God chose Abraham. And then God chose Isaac. And then God gave us Jacob. And then the 12 patriarchs. And then Joseph. And then Moses. They were so stubborn, they followed God's lead, but they rejected God's calling. And that's the problem we have today. You think about this. Think about when you come to Jesus Christ. Before you came to Christ, how God led you through. Man, you should have been dead, drinking, doing drugs, running around, being promiscuous, living a life full of hell. Yet God allowed you to live every single day. He led you all the way coming to church and you rejecting. Coming to revival, you rejecting. Coming to listen to a Bible study and still yet rejecting Him. Time after time after time after time until finally... You leave those stubborn ways and you fully accept Jesus Christ and you surrender to him and you look back and you think, man, I was such a fool. God really led me. What was your problem? He led you, but you did not follow his calling. In fact, there are some of you here today, you may be listening by way of radio, you're listening by way of podcast, some of you watching my video. And God has led you here. You have found this, uh, this broadcast. You have heard this preacher preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, always saying, look at the Bible, look at the Bible, look at the Bible. And the whole time, God is drawing you. He's calling you. He's wooing you. He's wanting you to come to himself. But you have an unwilling heart. You're stiff-necked. And Stephen says, you're stiff-necked. I'm going to tell you something. Our nation's stiff-necked. You look at our history. You see how God has protected us year after year, year after year, year after year, year after year. And what have we done? We've rejected him. What have we done? We've cast him by the wayside. We say it's not important. Unwilling hearts. How long did God deal with a stiff-necked generation? He's still dealing with them today. And the fact of the matter is he's still dealing with you today. You see, a stiff-necked person is a person that's unyielding. His head is set. His jaw is thrust out. His ears are closed. His teeth are clenched. And he says, I will not do it. Not today. Stiff-necked. And then watch this. Stephen turns his attention. He says, not only 
Are you stiff-necked, but you're also uncircumcised of heart and ears? What is this? This is an unrepentant religion. Unrepentant religion. Look at what the Bible says again in verse number 51. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And you see in our English translation, there should be an explanation point. That's pointing to the fact that in the Greek, in its, in its writings here, there's this, um, there's this emphasis of, of, of the presentation. We understand what it means in English. It's almost like he's rising up and he's on his tiptoes. And he says, you're uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. And the question we have to answer is, okay, so what did these religious hear? These religious individuals, what did they hear when Stephen said this? Immediately their hearts went back to what Stephen had already said. Remember, Stephen had already dealt with this issue of circumcision. In his sermon, he says in verse number 8, he says, Then he, being God, gave him, being Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. What was the covenant of circumcision? It was an outward show of an inward change. It was to show everyone, if it was to show the family, the heritage, if you would, of that God has changed a family. The one true God has brought a covenant relationship with the individual. It's much like baptism today. Baptism is an outward show of an inward change. But the Bible is very clear on this issue of circumcision. Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 in the Old Testament says this. The Bible says, circumcise thyselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem or else my wrath will go forth like a fire and burn with, not, with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Here is a beautiful illustration in the Old Testament of what true circumcision really is to be about. It should not be some religious ritual that is done to the outside portion of the body, but it's something that's to be done in the heart. Circumcise your heart. It was meant to remove the carnality of the heart. These men had clean hands, but they had dirty hearts. They were clean on the outside, but they were not clean on the inside. They wanted to come to God their way. And because they wanted to come to God their way, whatever God wanted, they wanted to resist it. They were unrepentant. They were uncircumcised in their hearts. They were uncircumcised in their ears. They failed to realize that Joseph was a foreshadow of Jesus. Remember what he said about Joseph in verse 14. He says there, as Joseph was in Egypt, he said, Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money. The sons of Hamar, the son, or the father of Shechem. Why did all this happen? Because Joseph is foreshadowing Jesus. He's pointing to the fact that Joseph delivered his family, just like Jesus wants to deliver the children of Israel, just like Jesus wants to deliver the Gentiles. He's a, he's a beautiful picture of Jesus in the fact that he was rejected by his brothers. Remember, the brothers were jealous of him and sold him out into slavery. The religious leaders were jealous of Jesus and sold him out. They were all Judas's. We see, though, that Joseph one day delivered his brothers and sisters, his family. Jesus will deliver his family. 
Joseph was a foreshadow of Jesus. Moses was a foreshadow of Jesus. We find that he talks about Moses in verse number 20. Again, Moses is a man who left his home to deliver his people. Moses was a man who was first rejected and then delivered. And both of these men, J- Joseph and Moses, is this beautiful picture of Jesus, if you would. And they both point to, to making sure that the Gentiles are saved before the Jews. It's a fascinating study. Joseph delivered the Egyptians. And Moses fathered, fathered two sons by a foreign woman in his deliverance. And now Israel had gone and done it again by rejecting the Messiah. They said, we don't want anything to do with him. Stephen is very clear. He says, your problem is you have an unrepentant religion. In regards to a circumcised heart, if what hinders a person from yielding to God is cut away, that is circumcised, the heart becomes open. The heart becomes pliable. The heart becomes amenable to the word of God. And the effects will fall upon that individual and they will surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Why would these Jewish individuals, these Jewish religious leaders, why would they not come to Jesus Christ? Because they were uncircumcised in their hearts and uncircumcised in their ears. And the reason they would not be circumcised in their heart and their ears and listen to the Word of God is because they were stiff-necked. Why do people not come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord? Because we're stiff-necked. We have an uncircumcised heart and uncircumcised ears. We have this unrepentant religion. We look to a man, a pope, and we listen to what the pope says. The pope came out yesterday and just simply said this. Don't worry, folks. God's not going to judge homosexuality. The only challenge that I have with that is what does the Word of God say? What does the Bible say? A lot of times people ask, and they want to get you with these gotcha questions. One of the gotcha questions is, what do you believe about homosexuality? And as a born-again child of God, you have to answer that in such a way that is in line with what the Word of God says. And if you answer outside the Word of God, then you answer outside or inside, if you would. You answer according to the culture. And if you answer in accordance to the culture, then the culture will call you a bigot. Here we find in this particular passage of Scripture, because these un, this unrepentant religion, these uncircumcised hearts and these uncircumcised ears presented a religion today that looked good on the outside but was filthy on the inside. And then Stephen says, you got a third issue. The third issue that you're going with is just simply this. Not only are you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, but you always resist the Holy Spirit. Just as your fathers did, you're doing the same thing. What is this? This is an unholy resistance. An unholy resistance, verse 51. The word resist there means to be adverse. It means to oppose. It means to strive against. So, so Luke here is clearly teaching that you can resist the Holy Spirit of God. Now this is vitally important because there's teaching out there today that says that you can't resist the Holy Spirit of God. But according to the Word of God, the Bible says that you can resist it. And not only that, the Bible speaks very clear about the resistance of the Holy Spirit and says this, in fact, is the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is when you resist the Holy Spirit of God. What Stephen is saying is you are committing the unpardonable sin because you're resisting the Holy Spirit. And you've always resisted the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus spoke about this in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the sons of men will be forgiven all their sins and blasphemy, as many as they utter, but whosoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of eternal sin. That's Jesus' words. So what is the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is rejecting and resisting the power of the Holy Spirit, calling you to salvation. And these individuals, these religious leaders of that day, they were resisting that. They said, we don't have anything to do with it. We don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. We don't want to follow after him. We don't want to walk in his ways. And Stephen says, you always have resisted the Holy Spirit, just as your fathers resisted. And he looks all through the history that he just proclaimed. He said, they resisted, they resisted, they resisted, they resisted, they resisted. Even when God was using Moses as they were in bondage in Egypt. In verse number 25, he says, he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them out of the hand, but they did not understand why. Because they were always resisting the Holy Spirit of God. What is the Holy Spirit supposed to do? The Bible is very clear on this. The Bible says that Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit that he would be a comforter to us. He'd be a companion to us. John chapter 14 verses 15 through 18 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever and ever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The words, I will come to you, means that the Holy Spirit will come to us. And that coming to us can come first and foremost through receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord. There is yet but only one dwelling inside of us when we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior and Lord. But the Bible talks about this many feelings that we might have as we're living in this sin-sick world and need encouragement. And whichever person you feed, church, that's the person that will be strong in your life. We find that in many cases, a lot of people, born-again children of God, feed the flesh. And so they wonder, why am I not spiritual? Why do I not see the same things that you see, Pastor? Why, why, do, why do I not see the same things that other Christians see? Because you feed the flesh. As a born-again child of God, if you've received the Spirit of God in your life, then there's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. There's a hunger and thirst for the Word of God. There's a growth that you want to partake in. You not only want to have the milk of the Word, but you want the meat of the Word as well. And by receiving the meat of the Word, you grow up in Jesus Christ. And instead of resisting the Holy Spirit, you embrace the Holy Spirit as He moves in our life. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, the Lord said this. He said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is the flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. The word strive here means judge, contend, plead. He just simply says this. My spirit will not plead with people forever. I'm done. When you think about the long suffering of Jesus Christ, we ask this question. What kind of person would resist the Holy Spirit? Stephen is very clear here. He said a person that's stiff-necked, that is stubborn. Can I ask you a question, sir? 
tell me, is the reason why you haven't come to Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, is that because you're stubborn? Ma'am, can I ask you this? Why is it that you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you've kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, putting it off? Maybe you don't recognize it. Maybe you don't see it. But the Bible says you're stubborn. And according to the Word of God, the Bible says that His Spirit's not going to always strive with the spirit of mankind. And the bottom line is, the Scripture says today's the day of salvation. Today is when you must come to receive Christ as Savior. Don't be a stiff-necked person. Humble yourself and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For continuing to be stiff-necked and stubborn, you are walking in an area of uncircumcision where you do not have a circumcised heart. You do not have circumcised ear. You're not willing to submit to Jesus Christ. And you're always willing and always wanting to resist the power of the Holy Ghost. It's an unholy resistance. It's an unrepentant religion. It's an unwilling heart. And then watch this. Stephen says, number four. Here's your fourth challenge. You also have unacceptable rejection. Unacceptable rejection. Look at what he says in verse 52, which we're coming to the close here. He says, which of the prophets did our fathers not persecute? None. They persecuted them all. He says, and they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. The just one is capitalized, pointing to Jesus Christ. He says, of whom now... Have become the, you have now become the betrayers and murderers. He points his finger at Caiaphas and the rest of the guys, and he says, you all murdered Jesus. You're all betrayers. You were all Judases. The scripture in speaking of the just one, Stephen's pointing to the fact that these Old Testament prophets pointed to Jesus as one that was just, one that was merciful, one that was righteous. He was a righteous servant, a righteous branch, a just person, a, having salvation in his hands. Stephen's styles, if you was, was pointed to the, to the fact of his holiness and the nature of Jesus Christ being 100% God and 100% man, being innocent and harmless, and yet coming to receive upon himself the sins of the world at his death. And dying on Calvary's cross. What Stephen is doing is calling every one of them Judas. Their whole nation betrayed Jesus. And their religion is sending people to hell. They turned him over to Pontius Pilate and condemned him to death. Which greatly moves Stephen in such a way that with the boldness that he has inside of him. Says, you're the ones that betrayed Jesus. You're the ones that murdered him. And here's that old... A spiritual song that was sung, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, 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 oh. Some days it causes me to wonder, wonder, wonder. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there. I was there that day. Oh, listen to me. Friend, I wasn't there physically to see it with my own eyes. But on that day that Jesus went to Calvary's cross, he took my sin, placed him upon himself. And he died in my place. We find here in the text, Stephen says, you've got unacceptable rejection. And then he says, here's the fifth problem. There's only five. Here's your fifth problem. He says, you have an unfair standard. Look at what he says in the text. He says in verse 53, who've received the law by the direction of angels... 
and have not kept it. He says, God himself gave to you the law showing you that you could not keep it. And you didn't keep it. And you still reject his Messiahship. He says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're guilty before God. Here's what I find fascinating about Stephen's sermon. Stephen doesn't give a public invitation. He didn't say, all right, every head bow and every eye closed. He didn't do that. He just stops right there and says, you're all guilty. You can't even keep the law that you're asking everybody else to keep and draining them and draining their funds and draining their money. You, you can't even explain why the veil was ripped in two. You're religious, but you have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 54. The Bible says, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. I'd underline that. You know what that means? They were under conviction. Remember, remember what the scripture said about Stephen. He's an amazing man. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of power. He's full of grace. He's full of wisdom. He is speaking on behalf of God. He lays out their entire history while he points against his accusation. He lays out the truth about who Jesus is and says, You're guilty and you'll stand guilty before God. And the Bible says they were cut to the heart. They were under such conviction that they had to make a decision. And here was the decision. They could turn and trust Christ as their Savior. Or they could reject Jesus Christ and continue to resist the Holy Spirit. Look at what happens in verse 54. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They stopped up their ears and said, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to hear it. And they looked over. And there in the corner was a man by the name of Saul. And Saul turned to those and said, Kill him. Look at what the Bible says here. But he, that's Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know what's fascinating about this text is the Bible tells us that when Jesus ascended up into heaven, he was there and he sat down at the right hand of God. That was, a, that was an illustration, Roger, of a, of a finished work. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest never sat down. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, they had to tie a bale to the foot of the priest. And they had a rope tied to his ankle that was stretched out in the Holy of Holies. And somebody was on the other end of that rope. And as long as that bell was ringing, that meant, that meant the priest was alive. But if the bell ever stopped ringing, they knew to start pulling because the priest was dead. Why? Because sin can't stand in front of a holy God. And as God dwelt in that holy of holies, as he would come down and, and rest on that holy of holies, if that priest had sin in his heart, he died right there on the spot. They had to drag the priest out and get another one in there. It was a serious deal. But we see here in the text here, Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was ripped. 
No longer do we need that Holy of Holies. Now we can come right into the Holy of Holies by prayer and coming into the presence of Jesus himself. And now here's Stephen who has spoken a bold message about God. He's about to be killed. He looks up into heaven and there's Jesus standing up to receive him. The point of this message is simply this. In regards to this issue of our culture, by way of application today, our culture is contrary to the Word of God. Last week I was very um, forward in speaking about some of the social challenges that we have in our culture today. My opinion is mute. God's instruction is very pointed in regards to the issue of when life begins, the Bible says it begins at conception. In regards to the view that genders exist, God said that he made them male and female. In response to the calling of God's call for marriage, he said it's between a man and a woman. In regard to our culture's stance on homosexuality, the Bible says that it is a sin. The challenge that we have today is that when a pastor says that, he's looked upon as a bigot. Nobody loves people more than a pastor. A true pastor that loves the flock is the one that is called an under-shepherd, and that under-shepherd lays in front of the door of his sheep so the predators do not come in and get the sheep. The pastor is the one that just proclaims the Word of God and says, here's what the Bible says about that. And today, I give you once again the Word of God in relationship to our culture. Could I end with, Re with Romans chapter 1? Would you turn there, please? As we see that we're living in a nation that is stiff-necked. We're living in a nation that is stubborn. We're living in a nation that is, has an unrepentant religion, an unwilling heart, an unholy uh, rejection, and has an unfair standard today. And until we come back to Jesus the judgment of God will rest on this nation the Bible says in verse number 18 of Romans chapter 1 in closing for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Here's the thing that I beg people to do. Right here, I'm begging you. The Bible, the scripture word is beseech. I beseech you on the word of God that you would search your heart. That you would see you have a God-shaped vacuum in there and you can try to replace it with different uh, agendas. You can try to place it with different platforms. You can try to place it with different feelings. You can try to place it with drugs, with alcohol, with homosexuality. You can try to replace it uh, with, with, with anything. You just name it. You put it in there. The Bible says that it's manifested in them for God has showed it to them. If you'll look in your heart, you'll see that the only thing that will fill that void is God. Why? Watch this. Verse 20. This is it. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. 
people often ask, they say, how in the world could a holy, righteous, loving God send anybody to hell? Right here it is. Because when they knew God, when they knew God, the heavens declaring that there was a God, they rejected that God. It was even proclaiming His eternal Godhead and His eternal power. So there's no excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Neither were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish in their hearts. Their hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like unto corruptible man and four-footed beast and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of a, for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is simply saying what Stephen said. A nation that goes in this direction is stiff-necked. In verse 26 he says, Because they're stiff-necked, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is that against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being fulfilled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliceness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Does that not speak of what's going on in our culture today? I mean, this is lining up just with 2020. Who, verse 32, knowing the righteous judgment of God, he is going to judge that those who practice those things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Stiff-necked. Not having a changed heart and not willing to listen to the Word of God. Stiff-necked. Uncircumcised heart and ears. Rejecting or resisting the Holy Spirit. Rejecting Jesus Christ and holding to the standard that says, I'm religious. I go to church every Sunday. There are going to be a lot of people in hell, brothers and sisters and friends. Listen to me. There will be a lot of people in hell that were in church on Sunday. It's not a matter of religion. It's a matter of relationship. Stephen says, listen to my sermon and surrender your hearts to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man will come to the Father but by me. The only way that you're saved is that you must come through Jesus. He's the only way of salvation.
Someone might say, well, how do I do that? How, how do I come to Jesus? Remember who's standing there getting ready to kill Stephen. A man by the name of Saul. Saul will kill Stephen and admit to the consenting of killing Stephen. We'll see that here in a couple of weeks. After he consents to that, he is on his way to Damascus and God interrupts his life and says, why are you always opposing me? You have been resisting and resisting and resisting. And you know the truth, Saul. Saul is blinded by such light. He repents of his sin and trusts Jesus Christ as his Savior. Gets so radically saved, he changes his name to Paul. Paul later writes in many of his epistles that the only way for you to get to heaven is you've got to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. The Bible tells us in Romans, if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Paul wrote that. The man that saw Stephen die, as he said, kill him. So who were the blasphemers against God? The religious. Who were the blasphemers against Moses? The religious. Who were the blasphemers speaking against the law and against the tabernacle? The religious. And who are those today that speak against the Holy Spirit of God? The religious. I want to challenge you today to stop being religious and start having a relationship. With Jesus Christ. What is the Holy Spirit of God calling you to do that you're resisting? I know that there are some. God's calling you to teach a small group. Bible study. God's calling you to work in a specific ministry. God's calling you to be saved. God's calling you to take a stand against the culture that we have today. Stop resisting. And start following the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, Stephen's words are so powerful. Gosh, Lord, they're so sharp. They're sharp. And yet he looks up to heaven and sees you standing. Lord, when we come to the end of our life, I wonder how you'll receive us. Say, man, I don't think I can be as bold as Stephen. You're not calling us to that boldness. You're calling us to yourself. And it's yet when we come to you, that's when we're filled with the Spirit of God. So, Lord, I pray today for those that you have been calling to be saved. I pray they'd be saved today. Lord, for those that you are calling to follow you in some type of ministry, whether that be uh, being baptized, I pray that they'd stop resisting that and be baptized. Lord, for those that you are calling into ministry, they'd stop resisting and that they would follow that. I pray in the name of Jesus that we'd follow your word. And we would not just be religious, but we'd have a relationship with you. Help us not to resist the power of the Holy Spirit. Now before I say amen, church, maybe you're here today and maybe you'd like to trust Christ as your Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and say, yes, that's something I want to do, then right where you're sitting today, whether it be at home, whether it be in the car, wherever you're at today, right here in this worship center, God spoke to your heart, and you've been resisting the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. 
And this morning I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Today I repent and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I live for you. In Jesus' name. Now before I say amen and we stand and we're going to sing one verse of a song and we're going to be done and be out of here. But you might be a born again believer and maybe the Holy Spirit has been telling you some very specific things. And you've been resisting that. I want to challenge you today, brother and sister in Jesus. Don't be stiff-necked. It leads to bitterness. It leads to a hard heart. Surrender to Jesus. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. Surrender to God's will. And watch what God will do through you. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where, once again, we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.